What's up, people, and welcome to this week's episode of But I Digress. I'm your host, Warren, a.k.a. Chris, as usual. And today on the podcast, we're going to cover a few different things. We're going to talk about the NCAA, the National Collegiate Athletic Association, uh, in regards to the upcoming NBA draft. We're going to talk about Facebook's new venture. Uh, We're also going to talk about uh, scuba divers breaking some records at a beach in California, the once rumored, now confirmed story that the Boondocks animated series is coming back, and then we're going to finish it up with a little talk on petitions. Before we actually get started, I did want to address one of the comments that was left uh, on Apple Podcasts where somebody asked about having guests. I do have have plans to have guests. Uh, One of my friends is actually leaving this upcoming Tuesday to go to the knockout rounds and championship of the Women's World Cup. And when she gets back, she will be our first guest, and we're going to talk about the experience of going to the World Cup, kind of why she does that, and what it was like to see a national sports competition. And then I am also going to do an interview with my dad for Veterans Day when we get to that point in the year, as he is a 20-year veteran. And then there will be some other things that happen uh, maybe between those two interviews and possibly after that will warrant us having some other guests based on their unique experiences and things they do for work and things they're interested in. So there will be guests on the podcast. Uh, we are working on that. So let's get started with Today in History. Uh, going back a little far th- uh, today, in 1885, we had the Statue of Liberty arrive in New York from France. Uh, most of us know that the Statue of Liberty was a gift from France. And it was actually today in 1885 that it got here. So that's pretty cool. Uh, in 1963, we had Soviet cosmonaut Valentina Tereshkova become the first woman in space. Uh, we do remember the space race of the 60s of who was going to get to space first and then who was going to get to the moon first. And the Russians did send the first woman into space on today in 1963. Uh, Just a year later, some domestic news, in 1964, on this day, the Civil Rights Act was passed by the Senate uh, after it had been passed in the House earlier on February 10th. Civil Rights Act being that you can't discriminate uh, against people in public or private forms. We also had a little lighter news. In 1978, the first Garfield comic appeared in 41 different newspapers on today in 1978. And we know Garfield later became a television show that many late 80s, early 90s babies watched and has been a mainstay in newspapers ever since its inception. So that was actually pretty major in the world of art and animation, having Garfield released on this day in 1978. The last thing we're going to talk about for today in history is Juneteenth. Today being June 19th is widely recognized as the holiday that celebrates the official end of slavery. Now, those of us who pay attention in history know that the Emancipation Proclamation was made on January 1st in 1863. However, the Civil War was still going on at that time. In April of 1865, uh, Robert E. Lee, the general of the Confederate Army, surrendered, which ended the war... States now come back together and are all listening to and following the laws of the Union. It was at this time that soldiers arrived at Galveston, Texas, 
to say, hey, the war is over, the union won, all the states are back together. And so because you all now have to follow those rules, slavery has been abolished in the union and now is abolished in all of the southern states as well. All the slaves are free. Uh, it was said that during the Civil War, the slaves were supposed to find out that slavery had been abolished in the Union. Uh, it would have been beneficial as we had black armies back then that were also helping to fight against the Confederate States. And there are a few different myths about what happened to those people. Uh, there was a myth that one of the soldiers that was supposed to deliver the message was killed and then taken and nobody really knows where his body was or what happened. There were other myths that they purposely didn't tell the slaves and slave owners that slavery was abolished so that the slaves wouldn't feel like they could leave and go fight with the Union. There are a lot of different rumors about what happened. Nobody actually knows. But what we do know is in 1865, with the North, the Union, winning the Civil War and reuniting the states, slavery was over, and... It was on June 19th that the Southern Territories found this out and slaves were free. Um, the celebrations of Juneteenth actually started immediately. Uh, slaves had never recognized the 4th of July as a holiday, although many of their slave masters did. And so upon being free and going to various places in the South or going to the North or wherever they went, obviously just leaving the plantations that they were raised on, these people celebrated Juneteenth yearly and what ended up happening is we saw a decline in Juneteenth as history books started to talk less and less about slavery as a whole then you had less focus on when it ended and then you lost a lot of the celebrations of Juneteenth and this also kind of happened as although people did migrate from their plantations originally and try to settle and create a family, you did have, with the Industrial Revolution, a lot of families move from where their families had originally settled. And so in that move and lots of communication, you had a loss of some traditions. And one of those tr traditions that kind of fell by the wayside was Juneteenth. And so what's happened is with us, us being African-Americans, taking more interest in history and having more access to it through technology and things of that nature, there has been a new wave of Juneteenth celebrations every year as we have been able to see the importance and see some of the traditions that Juneteenth has been trying to hold up. Now, what did happen, ironically enough, in Texas on January 1st of 1980 is Juneteenth became an official state holiday. And we are still pushing to have this be a federal holiday uh, to celebrate not just the end of slavery because... Technically speaking, slavery ended on January 1st, 1863, but the actual end and freeing of slaves who had been enslaved in the South, which would be January 19th, 1865, which has been accepted by the African-American community as the date that slavery ended. There's It's one of the few things that our community isn't arguing about. And so it'd be really nice to have this major point in American history recognized because while one group of people became free on July 4th, there is an entire another group that at that time was not free. They were just slaves of a different nation. And so recognizing their freedom and which has now led to 
mine and my family's and a lot of the people that I know and people that we all know. It's led to their freedom as well. So recognizing that major turn in American history would be really, really awesome. So I will continue to support the push and the march to make Juneteenth a federal holiday that is recognized. And we don't need to have school off or anything like that. It would be cool to have off school and work, but not actually necessary. But it would at least be nice for the government to recognize that this day is important to a major faction of their citizens. We're going to move on to our first actual topic of the day. And with the NBA draft coming up, I wanted to talk a little bit about the NCAA, uh, this is a topic that I've had conversations with people about for years now, um, but I haven't talked about it on the podcast yet, and this seems like a pretty good time with it being a little slow in sports. We don't have a lot of sports to talk about, so this is actually going to be our one sports topic for the day. So the NBA draft is coming up, and for those of you who don't watch sports at all, um, many of the major pro leagues have drafts of quote-unquote amateurs, so players who were not previously pros, uh, most of them coming from the college ranks, although in baseball you can also select players coming out of high school, and then in all of these sports you can select people coming from Europe. Generally the NBA, the National Basketball Association, is the only one that does a lot of the picking for players in Europe. Um, baseball has another way of picking people not from America, and they just kind of sign them in during periods of time where they where people aren't drafting it gets very complicated but the point is we have the NBA draft coming up and so this is a really interesting time to talk about what goes on with these players so by a lot of people's standards this has been called a quote three-person draft basically meaning that there are three players who have put themselves in a completely separate tier from all the other players being drafted the history of the draft will tell us that every time we've thought about we thought that this was the case you had a one or two of those people considered at the top to not end up being as good as we expected and some people drafted later on in the draft to be much better than we expected so while people call it a three-person draft there will inevitably be players from different points in the draft who emerge as great players but that's not actually the important part the important part is all of these players are being selected as amateurs and have been in a system that treats them as amateurs, but expects a lot more from them. Yes, this is the part in the history of the podcast where we talk about college athletes being paid. I probably won't talk about this again unless the NCAA makes some major changes in it. But when I talk to people about it, and because I actually wrote a paper about this in college, so when I talk to people about it and kind of throw out some of the numbers, a lot of people, a lot of people I have found were unaware at just how bad the college athletes being paid isn't. So the common argument that you hear against paying college athletes is they're getting a scholarship and that should be worth more than enough because and you can't put a price on education and opportunity and blah, 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 blah. 50, 60 years ago, I would agree with you because college athletes were going to school and sports was giving them a way to get there get a free education, and that was really cool. But now we've reached this point where college athletics has been monetized at the same level as pro sports. However, the athletes are still only being quote-unquote paid with a college scholarship. Most of those scholarships valued somewhere between $20,000 and $50,000 a year, which to a lot of us is a lot of money, I will agree. However, when you look at the value 
of these players and the amount of money that they are creating, the amount that they're being compensated, which is their degree, is completely unfair. And we're also leaving out a lot of the other things that are required by these scholarship athletes. So the first thing we're going to talk about is just some numbers that happened while players were in school. So the presumed number one overall pick and presumed number three overall pick in this NBA draft played on the same college team they played at Duke University. Duke University has a long standing of being a great college basketball program. It's commonly referred to as one of the blue bloods of college, the programs that are traditionally good. And so this year with them having two of the most well-known players in college basketball, when Duke played their rival, University of North Carolina, the tickets averaged $1,930 on the secondary market. And when it comes to college games, that's how they value tickets, how much people are reselling them for, because that gives you a true look at how much the ticket is valued at. Because tickets for college games generally don't change that much when you buy them initially. It's on the secondary market when people resell them that you see the prices. So a regular season college game, $1,930 on the secondary market. Just for a comparison, this year, game six of the NBA Finals was a potential elimination game. Toronto had a chance to win the series. And it was the last game at the Warrior Stadium Oracle Arena because Game 7, if it had taken place, would have been in Toronto, and that stadium is being torn down this year. So the last game at Oracle, a very beloved building, and that was also a professional finals game where a team potentially could have won the championship, $1,127.74. What's the average ticket price? So falling $800 short of a regular season game played by college athletes, where some of them will make the NBA, but most of them will end up being regular people who can say, I played college basketball. That is a huge difference in price. Here's another example. John Morant is widely viewed as the second best player in this draft, so he would be picked between the two players that we talked about previously. Just signed a shoe deal with Nike, and they haven't released the numbers, but the initial report said a multi-year, multi-million dollar deal. Now, let's keep in mind that John Morant has yet to play an NBA game and has yet to be drafted by an NBA franchise, which means the deal that he is signing is based on the notoriety that he has from his time in college, which means that if Nike were able to offer him a shoe contract last year before he played his sophomore season, or even in the middle of the year when his name started to get big, he would be able to sign it and make money based on what he is currently doing. However, because of the NCAA rules, he is not allowed to accept money and be considered an amateur. Let's also consider that universities have a history of allowing third parties, because universities actually can't do it, but third parties to use the likeness of their players on paraphernalia including shirts and posters and sell those things and those players do not get money for their likeness being used one of the things that you can do is if you look at college football especially in the south so basically start at texas stay south and go east and look at their jersey stores or look at their their stores from year to year and look at the numbers that are put on the jerseys 
Now, you do often see number ones just because you just have number ones, but you will also see that as the stars and the standout players on those teams change, the number, the jersey numbers that you can find in the stores also change. Now, because they don't put the player's name on the jersey, they can claim, quote, this is not representative of the player, it's representative of the school, but it's very obvious to see that the numbers change yearly. Jameis Winston was a Florida State quarterback, and while he was at Florida State, if you went online to buy a Florida State football jersey, the jersey that popped up the most was the number five. Jameis Winston was number five. If you go on now, often you still see number five, but you also see other numbers based on the players who are very good. And it takes no time after the players leave school for them to just slap the name on these jerseys and release them because they already had them made. And so what this really boils down to is there are numerous ways in which money is being made off of these players and they are not benefiting. Now, always, or a second common counter argument is well who's going to pay them and how is it going to be fair and what's going to make it different from pros when some schools make more money and other schools don't and so they can't afford to pay as much and blah 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 blah. i have two suggestions for this and either one works you have had people who have said well what we should do is allow the students to make money off their likeness and allow them to hire agents and that way while they're in school they can still be getting paid and the schools have nothing to do with it. It's totally merit-based on how well they're playing, and that way you still have competition, and kids can pick schools for whatever the reasons are that they pick schools as opposed to this one can pay me more money. That's fair. I'm okay with that. My other solution is have the NCAA pay them. The NCAA is the governing body of college sports, and that's all sports, Division One, Two, II, and Three. And they have a ton of money in revenue that they make every year and also leftover money. And if they don't quite have enough leftover money, they could maybe get a percentage, and that way it's fair for all schools, a percentage of the profit, not revenue, a percentage of the profit that some of these programs are making. And, and give that to the players. And that way, players are able to get paid. Now, people have also argued that most of this money is made by college basketball players and college football players, which I'll agree with. However, the problem with paying athletes is really only a college basketball and college football problem. Because the biggest problem with athletes not being paid is these Division one athletes with these crazy demands can't get a job like other students could. You have Division one athletes and Division two athletes who get full ride scholarships for their athletic ability. We also have uh, students at that same school who have full ride scholarships for their academic abilities. Biggest difference being the kids who are there on an academic scholarship study really hard, keep their grades up, they keep their scholarship. They can go get a job at the student union, at a local restaurant, at a local bank, whatever, to make money and be able to do things that they need to do. The athletes, on the other hand, cannot. There are numerous stories 
of these college athletes who are being treated like professionals not being able to go home for holidays because they couldn't afford the ticket to get home. Because some guy came and sat in their living room and told their mom, I'm going to take care of them. He's going to have this great opportunity. And if he works hard, he might be able to be a professional, but he's going to get a good education. So they send their kid away from home, further away than they can afford to pay for them to come back for holidays. Which most of us who have been to college frequently went back on holidays and or long weekends and or weekends when like major family things happen. But if I'm a major college athlete at one of these big programs, I can't get a job because my free time in which I'm not doing homework or playing a game or studying is spent at practice or traveling to games or in film rooms or whatever the case may be. I actually have witnessed this where I went to a Division I university that doesn't have a major program. And a football player wanted to get a job at Jimmy John's working with us. And he was only able to work a week until he realized that the demands of his job made it so that he couldn't work in Jimmy John's. Keep in mind that Jimmy John's was open from 10 a.m., to 10 p.m. most days, and then 1 and 3 p.m. on other days. So if that isn't enough hours for a kid to work a three-hour shift because he's got other responsibilities, then I can't even imagine what it's like for these kids at these much larger programs. So yes, they are getting their degree for free, which is really cool. But if they don't have the opportunity to make some money to be able to live, now we're talking about something altogether different. So we just have some numbers before we move on, just so we can really grasp how these student athletes, and yes, they consider them to be student athletes, even though they are often treated like athletic students, uh, they are worth so much money. So the top five basketball programs in terms of profit in 2016 And the amount of profit they made. Not revenue, profit. Indiana University. $22,075,823. All right. University of Kentucky. $25,167,069. Number three was Syracuse University. $27,211,557. Number Number two, Duke University, who we talked about earlier, and this number is inevitably higher this year based on their crazy success last year, but this is where they were in 2016, $31,255,570. And the winner of the 2016 highest profit in college basketball, University of Louisville, $41,670,685. Keep in mind, all of those universities are paying their coaches multiple million dollars a year and still bringing home for Louisville north of $40 million in revenue in one year. Or, sorry, in profit in one year. We're still in football where the numbers get significantly crazier. Now, this number is going to be a little more accurate. It's actually a three year average over years 2014, 2015, and 2016. And we're going to go in reverse order again from five to one. So we actually had a tie for fourth where the University of Notre Dame and the University of Oklahoma 
both brought home $72 million in profits on average during those three years. Number three is University of Michigan at $75 million. Number two, University of Texas at $87 million. And number one, Texas A&M University, $107 million. So over that three-year period, which keep in mind was three years ago, the Texas A&M University averaged $107 million in profits. There are, on, S- on the NCAA's estimate, 460,000 college athletes total. 460,000, which is a very, a very large number. But if we take some of the revenue made by every school in the country and consider that of the $1.1 billion in revenue that the NCAA reported in 2017, they had $144 million left over in profit. So you take some of that $144 million that the NCAA had left over after they paid for everything they needed to pay for, including salaries and such, some of these ridiculous profits that the major schools are making, smaller donations from the minor schools, it stands to reason that we can maybe give athletes $1,000 a year, $1,500 a year. I don't know, so that a kid who's in college and their parents can't afford to give them money every month, can eat somewhere that's not the school cafeteria, can get on a bus for five hours and get home for Christmas. And I really think that if we put our heads together, we could get even more money for these students because an organization is literally reporting $1.1 billion in revenue. Two years ago, keep in mind, that was in 2017. And their sole job is to govern college sports. $1.1 billion, and these 460,000 athletes can't get a penny? It just seems super unfair. Turning the page, we are going to talk about Facebook. Uh, Facebook is trying to get into and revolutionize the cryptocurrency game. They're trying to change the way that we look at e-currency, change the way that e-currency is used, and actually change the mission of e-currency. It's really interesting. So they're calling their currency Libra, uh, like the zodiac sign, and they have put in a bunch of systems of checks and balances to ensure that people use it and are not afraid because we've had Facebook data issues for the last couple of years. And so it's really interesting the way they're going about this. So they're launching Libra, but they're launching Libra as just a partner in Libra's running. Uh, They have what's called the Libra Association, which includes Visa, Uber, and Andreessen Horowitz, which is an American venture capital firm. All four entities put up $10 million individually for the founding of Libra. And they've actually, and Facebook has actually created a separate platform called Calibra. Uh, and that's what's going to manage Libra. So what it'll do is it'll keep your Facebook data sharing and clicking information separate from any spending that you do with Libra because it's actually housed in two separate programs. And so what they're actually trying to do 
is not only allow people who use things like PayPal where they connect their bank account or their debit card to use it, but they also are trying to allow people who don't have access to banks. And so what they're proposing is setting up basically kiosks where you can put in cash and it's whatever your local currency is. So not just like American dollars, but you can put in francs and euros and whatever else you have. And you will get X amount of Libra back based on conversion rates and things. And so then you'll be able to spend digitally even if you don't have a credit card, debit card, or bank account. And so what this will do is greatly expand the global economy because people without banks will now have money that can be used globally as opposed to just locally. And so it's really interesting because we've had lots of entities of e-commerce try to happen in a way where we have a separate quote-unquote dollar. Uh, We tried it with Bitcoin and there was a bubble and it burst and it didn't work. And so Facebook is really trying to do this as a way to continue its mission of connecting the world. Now, obviously, everything that we do, especially when it starts in America, is to make money. And so, yes, there will be fees associated that will allow Facebook to actually make money, Facebook and the other constituents, or not the constituents, sorry, the other investors, uh, to make money off of this venture. But they've talked about the fees being lower um, and less frequent than the previous uh, tries at e-commerce. So this is actually just really interesting to kind of see what happens with this and how well it does, because if we can find yet another way to connect the world, especially from an economy standpoint, then we will further develop our developing countries, uh, allowing people of less access but still significant income to be connected with the rest of the world in ways that they hadn't before. After the break, we're going to talk about a couple more things and then wrap it up with some talk about petitions. back our next story is actually about some scuba divers doing good deeds which is selling it a little short but let's just get into it at the deerfield beach international fishing pier in florida they have started to do an annual trash pickup where they recruit scuba divers to dive to the depths of the ocean on the just off the beach and clean up trash And this year, we set a Guinness World Record for a number of divers simultaneously picking up trash on one beach. They had 633 divers diving for two hours, and they collected 3,200 pounds of trash. Now, keep in mind that they do this every year, and their haul for the last few years has easily been over 1,000 pounds. So having more divers obviously meant they picked up more trash, but this is trash. This isn't trash that has been sitting for years and years. This is trash that probably got there within the last calendar year. And what happens when you start to look for an article like this is you see that this kind of thing has become regular and they've done it off the coast of Africa, near Egypt, and many other places where they've recruited divers to just dive and pick up trash. Now this brings up a really interesting topic because we've had this push lately to clean our oceans and so people have gone away from using straws 
we had the movement to cut the rings on the little six-pack plastic rings that they used for cans uh, because sea turtles were getting stuck in them and then growing and dying and dolphins were suffocating and all of those things. And I'm all for any movement that saves animals. But it brings up the bigger issue of why is our trash ending up in the ocean? And that's always what I bring up when people are like, oh, we shouldn't use straws or we should use paper straws or metal straws because plastic's ending up in the ocean. And so we have to stop using plastic. And my question is, or we could examine why our trash is ending up in the ocean. Because yes, it's great. Single-use plastics are an issue for various reasons. But just going, we don't want them to end up in the ocean, so we're not going to use them, doesn't really fix the problem. The bigger problem is that these things are ending up in the ocean. And I don't have an answer for this. I wasn't able to find an answer for this when we were researching. But I think that we, as humans who are living on this planet, need to do a better job at looking at what the actual problem is and solving it. Now, if the answer is we have too much trash and so landfills are overflowing and trash is being blown into the ocean, so we need to use less trash, I'm all for it. But let's examine. Somebody give me an answer as to why trash is ending up ending up in the ocean in the first place. And yes, I will use the plastic, or sorry, not the plastic, the metal and the paper straws and whatever, and Tupperware instead of Ziploc bags and all of those things. But I really think that we need to take a hard look at our sanitation system and figure out why our trash is ending up in the ocean. The last major topic we have for today is about the boondocks. And for those of you who are unfamiliar, the boondocks started as a comic strip written and drawn by the genius Aaron Magruder from 1996, and he actually stopped uh, the strip in 2006. So it had a nice 20-year run. And the comic is a satirical take on African-American culture and politics. And I actually read the comics as a kid and have the books of the full stories in comic strips that Aaron Magruder uh, supplied to us through words and pictures and it's really funny it's really smart and obviously people noticed this and so it became a television show the television show aired on cartoon network's adult swim where they have some of their more mature content and it ran from 2005 to 2014 with 55 episodes over four seasons however the fourth season did not have Aaron Magruder on the team that produced it. So you could see they, the writers did a pretty good job of keeping with the themes and the tone of the story, but people who watched it very closely and were really big fans could see that there was a difference in the fourth season. And it's been something that I've rewatched numerous times. It's on Hulu for anybody who hasn't watched it or has watched it and wants to rewatch it. All four seasons are on Hulu. And there was actually a rumor started a couple weeks ago where John Witherspoon, a movie actor and also a voice actor for one of the characters, was on Joe Rogan's podcast and made some comments um, about him being on the show and then also said that it's coming back. And so for a couple weeks, it was a rumor. And everywhere you looked, it wasn't confirmed. You saw, uh, I saw a lot of reposts on Facebook, and I was like, I'm not reposting this until somebody can actually confirm it. 
And so I was actually laughing with my sister last week because she said, hey, are you going to talk about the Boondocks on your podcast? And I was like, I don't actually know if it's really coming back. Well, thank you, Sony Animation, for putting all of our rumors to bed. Sony Pictures Animation announced at the Annecy International Animated Film Festival that they would be giving us a, quote, complete reimagining for the modern era with Aaron Magruder on the team producing the show. So for those of you who love the Boondocks, I am one of those people, it's coming back. For those of you who have never watched it, you should absolutely watch it. Much in the vein of when I said last week that if you haven't seen When They See Us and you don't know the story, you should absolutely do it for the story. What Aaron Magruder has done is take a lot of things in black culture and infuse them into the show. And he's also been able to point out some of the flaws in our society, in black culture, in white culture. But the way that he does it is in a very smart and funny way so that it doesn't offend people as much, I guess is the best way to say it. And it allows people to actually retrospect, retroactively and retrospectively view what's going on. So if you haven't watched The Boondocks, absolutely, you need to watch The Boondocks. The show is hilarious, and it allows you to look at a lot of the things that have happened in black culture in a very, very different way, all while pointing out that these things happen, and some of them are great, and some of them are terrible. And we really should analyze what's happening day-to-day in culture. For today's another one, I have a bit of another rant. I don't think it's going to be quite as passionate as the graduation rant from last week, but it is something that has been bothering me for quite some time. So petitions, something that a lot of us heard about when we were in whatever our preliminary schooling was, whether it was elementary school, middle school, high school, whatever. We heard about petitions. People talked about petitions. If you are on student government, maybe you receive petitions from students. Uh, I have been an advisor for student government and encouraged the kids to use petitions to push their agendas, whatever their agendas were, but also to be smart about it. And so change.org is a website that houses petitions. A lot of those petitions are for pretty good things. Um, Some petitions turn into class action lawsuits. I was a part of one with a restaurant where I worked where it started out as a petition for unfair labor practices, was picked up pro bono by some lawyers, and that petition turned into a lawsuit in which all of the employees who joined the lawsuit actually won. So, like, petitions do great things. What we've had recently is what I'm going to call an abuse of the institution that is petitions. Petitions are supposed to be for changing major and sometimes minor injustices, things that absolutely need to be changed in a system, in a, like in a federal system, in a state system, but generally in the legal system, because for whatever reason, that thing is unfair or it's antiquated or whatever it is. What petitions have turned into are ways for people to be mad about things that they have no control over. That's not what petitions are. Petitions aren't your way of going, I'm really mad at this. We have social media. If you're really mad about something, start a hashtag. A lot of people who agree with you will agree with you on social media. Your hashtag will start trending. And then we'll all know you're mad. 
abusing the legal institution that is the petition does much like what graduations do water down what it's actually for. I would be really interested to talk to teenagers who are on social media and see these petitions to ask them what their view of petitions are and what they actually think petitions are. Because if you really just paid attention to popular news, you would get a completely different definition, really, of what a petition is for. Because all we've seen is we're really mad about this, justified or not. So let's start a petition and then everybody signs it. So I have a few of them just to give you examples. Most of the people in America who consume television watched Game of Thrones. Most may be generous, but there was a large number of people who watched Game of Thrones. Of that large number of people, the majority of those people were disappointed with the eighth and final season. If you did research, you saw that we had a difference in them no longer going off the books and the writers kind of being tired of being on the sh- of writing the show and wanting to do other things. So they said, we want to do it in this amount of time, and they kind of rushed it, and a lot of them admitted that they rushed it. Whatever your reason is for disliking it, you dislike it. That's fine. That's allowed. Be upset. Starting a petition to have these people who already said the reason that the A season was not as good as the other seasons was because we were tired of writing it. So starting a petition to have these people redo the A season is nonsense. This is not what petitions are for. While it was frustrating and annoying as a Game of Thrones fan to have to sit through that A season, that is not an injustice. We don't need 1.64 million and counting signatures to have the A season rewritten and reshot. That's not what it's for. Next petition. Quote, bring Tony Stark back to life. 61,000 and counting signatures. For those of you who don't know, and I don't want to hear, oh my God, you gave away spoilers. Avengers Endgame has been out of, has been released in theaters so long that it's out of most theaters and then it's being re-released in theaters with new footage. For those of you who didn't know that, uh, this weekend, Avengers Endgame is being re-released into theaters with new footage. Kevin Feige wants to break the Avatar record, and they didn't think they were going to make it, so there's no real word on how much new footage, but if you're a diehard uh, MCU fan, Avengers is coming out again with new footage. Uh, if I find out some information, we'll absolutely put that new information on the podcast. I may even do an emergency like 15-minute podcast to talk about that, but... New footage coming out for Avengers. But anyway, Tony Stark's character dies mostly because Robert Downey Jr.'s contract with Marvel and Disney is over and he's not making any more movies, so they killed the character. Bring Tony Stark back to life. We can't. Robert Downey Jr. isn't doing the movies anymore. Why are you wasting your time and energy on a petition to do something that can't happen? Because here's the problem. Let's say that they listen and they bring Tony Stark back to life and it's not Robert Downey Jr. Now we have a separate petition because people are pissed off that it's not the same character. They killed him because they do not have access to the actor anymore. Be happy that he got a glorious hero's ending. 
we shouldn't be bringing him back to life. The character needs to stay dead so Robert Downey Jr. can make other movies like he wants to do. The last one we're going to talk about, and believe me, there are tons of them. You can literally just Google weird petitions, is a Captain Marvel petition. The Captain Marvel petition sounds okay if you're somebody who read the comics because there's some origin story stuff where Captain Marvel um, was a dude first, was also a black woman first, and may or may not have been gay. There's There's a whole bunch of stuff. But what got me is the wording on the purpose of the petition. Quote, We need Brie Larson to step down from her role to prove she is an ally of social justice and ensure a gay woman of color plays the role. I'm going to read that again before we break it down. We need Brie Larson to step down from her role to prove she is an ally of social justice and ensure a gay woman of color plays the role. Couple of things. Number one. Brie Larson is an actress. She got into acting probably because she enjoyed it, and it's a lucrative career. I have no problems with that. If Brie Larson is an ally of social justice, she's an ally of social justice. Why does she have to quit her job to prove that she's an ally of social justice, number one? Number two, Brie Larson quitting her job does not ensure that they will change the character to a gay woman of color. That's not Brie Larson's job, especially if she quits. Marvel and Disney would make that decision. So we had this petition to have Brie Larson remove herself when I think she did a pretty good job, and most people agree. People who don't agree often, it was the role and not the actual actor. Regardless... She is being asked to prove that she's an ally of social justice, which is a completely unfair statement, and that her stepping down will ensure a gay woman of color takes the role, which is not at all the case. That's a decision made by Disney and Marvel, and because they've already made decisions on the next seven movies that she's in, her stepping down... For them, because of the amount of money it would cost, probably doesn't change the role. We just get a different white woman. If you don't believe me, watch Iron Man and then watch Iron Man 2. Terrence Howard was a jerk to everybody on set and the higher-ups. They replaced him with a different black man and didn't say anything about it. We've seen this movie already. We know how it ends. Brie Larson steps down, she gets replaced by a different white woman. Regardless, that's a dumb petition. Now, not all petitions are this dumb. And when you hear about some of the other petitions, it makes those other petitions seem even worse. We had a petition started by Americans to have the government stop Bank of America from charging debit card fees. Not credit card fees. Debit card fees. They were literally charging people $5 a year for having a debit card. Which doesn't make any sense. I'm supposed to put my money in a bank so that I can actually keep track of it. I get a debit card so that I can access said money. And it's my money. It's not like a credit card where you are fronting me money and I pay you back... A debit card 
is my money. And they were charging people $5 a year. Government was like, nah, that's not okay. Good petition. We had a petition in England to add historical women to what they call banknotes, what we would call paper money. I can get down with this. That petition ended with Jane Austen being put on a banknote. Major woman in British history. Good petition. We had a woman in Sudan, a Christian woman in Sudan, who was put on death row for marrying a Christian man. Seems fairly unethical. Petition happens. A bunch of other governments start to weigh in, start to apply pressure. She gets off of death row. Amazing petition. Finally, one that I am incredibly fond of, there was a petition to reform student loan repayment. The reason that recent students and people who were not recent students have been able to pay back their loans based on their income and public servants get 10-year loan reforgiveness after they pay, I think it's 120 payments on time and work in public service for 10 years, all their loans get forgiven. That reform started with a petition, saving people thousands of dollars and allowing them to live the lives that they wanted to live and intended to live when they went to college. Petitions can be used for great things. Let's stop wasting our time, energy, and effort on stupid things, like redoing a show that took two years to shoot the final season. That's all I've got for this week. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, Every week we get more and more listeners. I get a lot of feedback. If you haven't done it already and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please subscribe, rate, and review. If you're a Spotify listener, make sure you follow on Spotify. If you're a SoundCloud listener, uh, make sure you follow and comment. Uh, When you're reviewing, please give five stars. If you're not going to give five stars because you didn't like it or you didn't like what I talked about or you didn't like my opinion, just contact me instead. Give me five stars so I can continue to do this. And if you don't like it, just tell me. My DMs are open. You can follow me on Twitter at dubr1617. And you can follow me on Instagram at dubr16. Remember, my DMs are open if you didn't like the podcast. Thanks you so much for listening again this week and later days. Later days.